Hi, this is Jordan. You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordic region. I specialize in the gaming industry and today I am your host. Welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Bastian Geisler, Doru Apotre, Oli Back, Ted Grass, and uh, we are here to discuss raising capital in an indie studio. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Doru, do you want to kick us off? And I do apologise for everyone uh, for how I said your names, um, but Doru, do you want to kick us off? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um... It's, it's almost part of the introduction ritual to, to butcher my last name. Uh, I often do it too. So it's Doru Apriotese. Uh, it's originally a Romanian name. Uh, a lot of people think it's Greek and I forgive them for it. Um, my background is, well, mostly in dev, but a little bit in publishing as well. Uh, having worked at places like uh, EA, Avalanche Studios, Ubisoft, and most recently Paradox. And right now I have my own little startup studio going called Right Size Games. Perfect. Uh, Ula? Uh, is that my name? <laughs> yeah, so uh, my name is Ole. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm the CEO of uh, Nerdlight Games. It's a, it's a small startup. Um, we're uh, six people right now, and uh, we, we recently raised a seed round. So I guess that's what we're here to talk about. Bastian? All right, Bastian here. Um, my background is from Germany, came to Sweden in uh, 1991, and uh, I'm fully set here now, so I consider myself to be full-blown Swede these days. Um, my background is actually in finance, and uh, I didn't feel inspired in finance, and that's kind of how I got into gaming, being a serious gamer myself to the level where I almost missed uh, out on studies <laughs> because late nights of Diablo or something like that uh, almost messed it up. So really happy to be in the games industry, uh, finally working with uh, stuff you feel passionate about. And last but certainly not least, Ted. Yes, hello. Um, I'm Ted Grass, and I am a, a former programmer, actually. I worked with the games like 20 years ago as a programmer, and uh, about 15 years ago, I changed to interaction design instead of programmer. And I've been working with games uh, part-time since 2015, I would say. Uh, I currently own Bombina Games, which is a company working uh, with uh, edutainment games for uh, younger kids. And our goal is to help the, with the digitalization of Swedish education system. Uh, so, yeah, that's basically it, I would say. Perfect. Uh, and now we've got a bit of a context to everyone. Uh, let's move on to the topic in focus. You all have a question or statement on raising capital in an indie studio. Uh, as usual, I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. Uh, each of you will have an opportunity to give your take on the situation. Uh, so let's start with Ted. Yeah, OK. Um, yeah, so my question uh, is, um, uh, Apart uh, from personal experience in uh, our company, when we started, we, my idea was to do this all by myself, uh, financially wise. Uh, but after a few years, I noticed that the production speed was kind of uh, taking damage due to that. So I started thinking about maybe try to raise some capital to 
pay the developers so we get some going here. So um, my question is really, how do you find and attract possible investors? And how do you know that they're a good fit for you and your company and your values? Um, Bastion, let me jump in right away. Um, I think it's a broad question, right? Um, in the sense of finding the right investor in your space, I think is one of the most uh, difficult things to do, right? How do you kind of even find the door, even less getting through it? Um, from my perspective, having raised money since 2017, when I uh, started Ringtail, um, it's been a lot of Googling and a lot of no's. Many, many, many no's. Uh, okay. So um, it, it's definitely a numbers game in the end. Um, if you know your value, you know what kind of value proposition you have. In the end, I do think it's just about getting in front of enough people and, and you will find the right ones. And you'll also, or at least for me, it, it often became very clear if an investor is definitely not the right fit just from the questions and the personality maybe and, and asking yourself the question, is this a person that I would want to work with? Because a lot of investors might want a board seat or might want some sort of influence over the company in, in whatever capacity it might be. So being a good fit in that kind of having personality that works where you can kind of, you know, look in the eyes and have a good handshake and say, you know, I'm happy that you're on board. Looking forward to create stuff together with you. Um, I feel that's important. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. I can I can ship in as well. I, I think it's I mean it it might be worth uh, mentioning the 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 importance of actually trying to find your values before you start talking to investors and trying to you know get that on paper and and try to understand who you guys are and uh, what you want to achieve. So so you uh, you have that sort of on paper before you start talking to them. Otherwise it can be tricky to, to 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 you know judge if they are a good fit or not if you haven't even spent enough time yourself trying to figure out who you are. Um, that's something we learned, I think, the hard way. Yeah, I want to echo both those sentiments. Um, I mean, as for finding these investors, I've actually almost surprisingly i found that the you know various trade shows and events that are made specifically for these kinds of purposes are actually quite good um i wasn't sure if they would be but um no i found that you know stuff like i don't know if we're supposed to be name dropping here but uh you know the, the game connections and what have you like they can be pretty good you know your gdcs and all these things uh a lot of people are there. A lot of people are in the right mindset to hear the kind of stuff that you want to be talking with them about. Uh, often it works a lot better than, you know, just like a random mail shot. Um, and as for whether they're a good fit, yeah, I mean, yes, you should know who you are first and foremost, definitely. Uh, and, and also, you know, be honest with yourself and look for these deal-breaking discrepancies of vision and, you know, try not to trick yourself into thinking that someone is a better fit than they actually are because in the end it's just going to backfire you might actually get ink on paper sooner that way but uh it's it's not going to pay off in the long term that's just my take yeah i agree and uh, the experience i have uh, both from trying to raise capital and in general is that uh, the, the the person you're talking to how you connect is 
more important that, than uh, their possible qualities. So <clears throat> that you that you really connect and you feel that you have the same goals and same ideas and probably also have the same uh, idea of how to get there. Even if I provide the knowledge and they provide the fundings, to me it's super important to really find the right person, not just the right wallet. So I think um, I totally agree with you guys. Um, I want to pick up quickly, Bastian, here uh, on what Ulle said, because I, I, I really agree also from my background before going into games myself, having heard a lot of pitches uh, on the financial side. Um, it's staggering how many um, start pitching before even you know knowing their own pitch. Like, what are you trying to sell? What's your elevator pitch? If you can't summarize it to me in two minutes, why I should invest with you? Um, why should I listen for 30? Right. I'm going to waste 28 minutes. Um, <laughs> So, so, so kind of that sentiment of what is it you do and why is it interesting to me? That part should just be nailed down um, and uh, going from there, then kind of building the story and, and uh, yeah, giving value. I mean, if you were on the other side, kind of that question, if you were on the other side, you're sitting there with money, would you invest? And if yes, why? So that why needs to really come out. Yeah. I think that that's pretty good, actually, uh, uh, what you just said, and a good lesson for everyone almost in every occasion. That is, try to put yourself in the other guy's shoes. Why would they want to invest in you? Why would they want to use your product? Why would they, whatever? And if you can't answer that, how do you expect someone else to invest in your company? So I think that's a really, really good point. I also think it's important to try and think a bit, a bit about sort of what kind of investor you're looking for. Are you are you looking for a VC? Are you looking for an angel investor? Are you trying to, how much do you want to dilute yourself? Are you trying to get, you know, the amount of money you're looking for? Uh, it's also important in trying to find these uh, investors. Uh, and uh, we 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 spent quite a lot of time, you know, looking at there are these you know huge lists of venture capitalist firms and, and that you can talk to directly. And during Corona, I think or COVID, they've been quite happily trying to show that they are very digital and, and uh, you know open for video chats. They've been uh, very friendly towards us. Um, but there's also these you know angels uh, for if you're looking for smaller rounds uh, and, and that might be a better strategy for you. Uh, and you can also you know look if if the right uh, uh, path for you could be someone like I mean Lego are doing venture uh, capitalism, but they don't have, you know, they don't they don't have the need to give back money to their investors at the same way as a, as a regular VC firm does, and that's something that can be worth thinking about. Yeah, on the topic of uh, you know saving everyone time, uh, I, I just think that it's good best practice to just front load all your deal breakers as quickly as possible. Uh, this means deal breakers in the sense of you know the company, but also the the project or projects that you guys are looking for funding for. Uh, just the kind of things that you think will either be a point of contention or stuff that you're not willing to compromise on, or you know any of these things. Like when I pitch a, a game to someone, I'm hoping will fund the game it's a uh, just super simple for me to just front load by saying look this is a game uh, that uses this business model uh it's in this product segment if you guys have zero interest in either of those then we don't need to keep talking right uh 
and sometimes people give you a maybe and that's a green light to go on to you know the next stage of your pitch arguably but like those deal breakers are going to come up sooner or later it's probably better that they come up sooner rather than later otherwise you're going to spend 30 minutes before you get to the slide that has the product segment and the business model and they just go "Ooh, we don't do those and then you know what good have you brought to the world yeah, we definitely fell for that one quite a few times. It's like ha having a 40 minute conversation and then, oh, by the way, we're doing premium mobile. Is that is that something you're interested in? Uh, not really. <laughs> you're like, OK, bye. So yeah, that's good advice. I actually came up with a follow question, uh, which I think can be uh, very interesting for other people. How do you do, uh, I thought of it when you mentioned the deal breakers there, how do you do with MDAs? Do you bring MDAs or do you just tell them all your goodies? Um, Bastian here again. Um, for me, NDA is a little bit down the line. Um, I, I normally have a quite large pitch without NDA, um, but of course, knowing what I can give out without really, uh, you know, going into any of the of the hot sauce stuff. Uh, that you want to keep for yourself and then kind of when when someone is seriously interested that's when an NDA comes in place if they want the data room or something to look more at at specific things but for me that definitely comes comes later yeah, yeah. I, I I tend to agree I mean we we never I wouldn't say we didn't have any revolutionary but I mean a lot of uh, a lot of it is just you know executing on the plan as much as having a, an awesome game idea um, and uh, uh, you know you can't really steal the execution part of it uh, from us so so we never felt like we couldn't share anything with any of the people that we were talking to yeah i've um got a bit of a sweet spot for ndas not least because i'm a you know just like a bit of a anxious person so i i, I do like them uh, but i understand that they're not always you know the the most appropriate thing uh, and they're not certainly not a deal breaker in every instance for right size games but what i'll like i'll, I'll have this um you know set of things that i take into account before deciding whether I'm, I'm going to ask for an nda or not um but typically so long as i'm just pitching over link or something like that and there's no deliverables sent through email or anything like that then i don't really care that much about the nda um Hope my lawyer is not listening to this, <laughs> but uh, um, yeah. But the soon, like as soon as deliverables start getting sent through emails, uh, I think I feel better about NDAs. Then uh, I think there's a bit of a sell there as well. Of course, you know, a if people have already seen what it is you're showing, they're more likely to to bother with the whole NDA thing. Uh, it's also a, an indication of whether they're really interested. I've had some people um, essentially fizzle out and kind of ghost me after I asked for the NDA. I don't think that NDA was the deal breaker, but the NDA was enough of an effort that it, they didn't really care about doing me the courtesy of accepting my deliverables anymore because they already knew that they were going to say no, right? Um, uh, and also, like, if it's a mutual NDA, it's a pretty easy sell or an easier sell than if it's a one-way. So having a mutual NDA as, um, you know, your basic template and being flexible to use theirs is also going to make it more likely for people to, to want to sign them. Uh, and then I guess arguably, um, yeah, it's, some of it comes down to previous relationships and stuff like that, right? So I, I, I don't think it's ultra important, but if it's someone you're talking to for the first time and um, you just have even an intuitive sense that maybe sending them anything through email without an NDA, then why not ask at least? 
have you had any issues you know b before that that uh, made you so cautious or um, uh, me personally no yeah. I, I don't know if that was for me Ole, but yeah, yeah, yeah me personally I, I i haven't but you know what it's like you know it, it only takes one time and then then that's going to be the thing that you remember the, for the rest of your life so i've just tried to be a little bit safe yeah. and, and and on some level i guess i am uh deluding myself into thinking that it projects some degree of professionalism to to, to ask for those um but maybe it doesn't i don't know if um if people push back and I'm really interested to, to, to doing the pitch for them, I'm not going to let the lack of an NDA dissuade me. For instance, there was a first party that was interested in hearing the, the pitch and they didn't want to sign an NDA out of, out of policy. And I still did the pitch for them because it was a first party. And of course I did. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think it's important to feel the situation. Actually, for me, it depends a little bit on who I'm talking to in, in the first place. Uh, but I wouldn't let an NDA, as you were into there, I wouldn't let an NDA at first pitch be the, the deal breaker because I can always limit the goodies in the presentation and just show them or tell them about fewer, for example. So, But I think it's an important question to, to ask and let people know how other people work with NDAs because it could be deal breaker for the guy that it presented for, or it could be a deal breaker for you that they don't want to sign it. So it's really important. And it's something that I struggled with in the beginning. I wanted to send it out to everyone um, because I had such a fantastic idea. And after a while, well, it, it took too much time and uh, it felt a little bit um, static also. Couldn't say anything without the NDA. Then, yeah, so it's. It's hard sometimes to know what way you should go with the NDA. Um, another thing with NDA, I think, is who are you talking to? Would would they be possibly want to do this themselves, or do they have the capability of doing it? A lot of investors are, you know, just that investors. They invest. They don't create stuff themselves because that's not their main objective here. Meaning, even if they hear your pitch and everything, they're not going to turn around and say, "This is the best thing I've ever heard. I'm going to make it myself." Uh, so. You know, if it is the best thing they've ever heard, they will invest in you yeah. uh, because you're going to make it. Um, so on the other hand, if you would talk to a competitor who is exactly in maybe the game genre you're making or something, and then you have this awesome pitch of a little twist or something that you believe will, you know, change that entire genre or something. Well, then I would maybe be more cautious about talking to specialized competitors who are, you know, doing that stuff very well. Um, so in the end, it's again that kind of risk analysis of who do I have in front of me and, and would that person or could that person even, you know, take something from me if they wanted to. Yeah, exactly. What, what, what's the secret that you're sitting on that, that can, you know, uh, spoil you or, or, you know, destroy your uh, <coughs> super idea? My experience is that the game that you pitch is most often not the game that you end up with anyway. You I mean, you're going through so many iterations and, and design, but if you have, you know, this killer idea that you're pitching, then I guess it makes sense to protect that. Yeah, totally agree. Brilliant, brilliant. Fantastic uh, answers and question there. Doru, uh, can we come to you next, please? Uh, sure. So um, my question is as follows. Uh, it can be tempting to make compromises in order to make your pitch more attractive to investors and publishers. How do you strike a balance between raising funds and staying true to your original vision for the game as well as the studio? And to provide a little bit of 
context that I believe may actually answer my question in a sense, at least from my perspective. Um, I'm, I'm just, I have my way of doing it. I have my values, obviously, but I just don't know if those are informed by all the relevant parameters. So I, I'm just interested in hearing other people's take on this and the kind of things they consider in striking this balance between being attractive and being true to what you believe in. Yeah, I can I can start. I mean, th this was such an important question to me as well. So this was actually the question that I also sent in, but then I had to, to change my question <laughs> because you had already asked it. So, but uh, I mean, we, to be honest, we flip-flopped quite a lot in the process. Uh, I'm not really proud to say that, but we, we, we felt it was more about learning and trying to understand the investors than changing our, our vision and also, you know, learning about the market and what is possible today to build. Um, it's It was as much a journey about, you know, finding ourselves as it was about finding the right investor and, and uh, change was part of that. Um, I, I wish in retrospect that, that so uh, we would have you know stuck by our guns a bit a bit stronger uh, before we sort of got um, used to pitching and uh, yeah. Let me uh, pick up from there. Um, I, I firmly believe that um, the strength of standing, let's call it your ground, a little bit, comes again from from your own value creation. An investor is going to invest mainly for one thing, and that is return, right? So if you can show the potential of return, there's not much to change. If that investor believes that you will make that return, you're all set. If that investor doesn't believe you will, they will come with suggestions. I believe if you did this instead, then your revenue would be higher or your business model should be something like this. And honestly, in a lot of cases, it probably makes sense. So listening to that, I would almost call it feedback rather than anything else, and then re-evaluating what did they just say and does it make sense? Maybe even, you know, scope out uh, an alternative path and see where it leads a little bit. Um, I almost call that free advice. And then from there, you, of course, have to figure out what, let's say, you know, you make a game and suddenly someone comes in and says, oh, I'm all about blockchain. If you put NFTs in your game, I'll invest. And you'll be like, sorry, but you know, that whole NFT stuff, I really don't want that. That's not me. I mean, you're standing your ground, even, even if it would make, uh, and no one really knows beforehand, but even if it would make financial sense to do it, it might be something where you wouldn't feel comfortable or so. Um, but in the end, I think it comes down to money. And the only reason why an investor would want to change anything in your in your deck or, or in your path is because they would see the potential of higher return by changing something. I think I have a pretty good point there, actually. Uh, you mentioned there having free advice. Uh, I, th I think that is a, a good thing to, to keep in mind that when you're talking to investors or other partners that invest time instead of money, it should be something that is beneficial for both of you. They're investing in you and you are in return investing in them in some way. So even if you can't uh, come to an agreement right there and then, you can at least listen to the person and see what kind of help you can get in, for example, contacting other people or changing your product so it could work. And then, as you said, go back, reevaluate what you have and see maybe they do have a point here or no, this is still not for me. 
but uh, so so you always listen to other people. I think that's a really good point, Abner. Yeah, I mean, uh, what I'm thinking is, and, and this was you know alluded to. Uh, you know, you can you can still stand your ground. You can still say no. Uh, it is free advice, very much, and it's also free advice that can be seen in the context of what they value. Like you're saying, Bastian. I mean, they, they interest they're interested in return, right? Um, they might not be as invested in whatever strategic goals you have for your own company. If they're a project investor, for instance, and they want to return on that project and they're not really there for the company roadmap as you see it, then of course there's going to be a discrepancy there. So you could, I suppose, evaluate the situation and say, you know what, they're completely right about the return, but it screws with my strategic goal for this game. And maybe making it a free-to-play game instead of a pay-to-play game is prudent but we're not making a free-to-play studio, so it's a moot point. So it could be one of these things where like, everyone's right, no one's wrong, and you're still not right for each other, if that makes sense. Definitely. Perfect, uh, let's change direction ever so slightly. Uh, Bastian, can we have your question, please? All right, um, this comes from, you know, again starting out listening to pitches a little bit more than doing them myself and then kind of you know sitting there and and pitching so my uh, question is uh, what is the number one thing that you think investors will look at first kind of when you pitch what is it yeah i think you you just said it in your last uh, in the last question it's like i mean if you're it depends a bit i guess on the investor you're talking to and they might be in for for a shorter term or you know a long term if you're if you're uh, talking to angels for instance they might have a different horizon but if you're talking to to big vc firms they they are only they're they're looking for potential growth uh, that's the the sort of um, what we've been uh, getting at least the the wipes and and the, what they've been talking a lot about and uh, it, it's pretty short term i mean they have a an um, responsibility to to whoever they whoever's money they are investing to 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 give return on those money it's as simple as that i think i have a slight different experience actually i haven't been talking to that many investors yet i think it's like a handful but the the number one question from all of them has been how many downloads do you have? Uh, and one actually asked first, do you have any products? Yes. How many downloads do you have? So that has been the most important thing for them. How many downloads do you have? I don't know if it's because the, they don't know that much about the gaming industry or if they're new as investors or if they, there's some other reason for them, but that has really been the, the number one. Do you have any experience from that? You guys. Yeah, definitely. I think this that's that's really important. I, you, I, I get the feeling that we're maybe in different markets. Uh, we are doing mobile uh, games, so it might be a bit different. But one thing that we noticed is like as soon as you have a game out there, as soon as you have something in soft launch or it's out there, you're no longer selling the vision, you're selling the metrics. So, so you have to, you know, be able to to show that those metrics are good once you have the game out there. So that might be worth thinking about. Yeah, we're actually doing mobile games for uh, uh, iOS and Android, but we're okay. The first games were a little bit more uh, entertainment, uh, entertainment than entertainment, of course. But the idea is to make uh, entertainment games for uh, for school and. Um, at that age level that we're working with, they always, not always, but more or less only use uh, iPads or at least tablets. 
So we're doing mobile games, um, but uh, with uh, more than just fun. Uh, there's also a, a meaning to the games. So I think we're slightly in the same, but also at the same time a little bit different because our main target right now is the schools and uh, the classrooms, really. Yeah. I guess once you have, you know, that this sort of standard way of looking at mobile markets, you you have to have the metrics in terms of the the cost per install. You know, what what does it cost for me to buy a player if you're doing free to play, and how much return would I get for that player? And those are the metrics. And and how long can I retain a player? And those are our experiences that the gamer investors that knows a lot about this, they these are the metrics that they are looking for. Yeah, um, just to add to the whole thing, I I think there's like there's a dimension that needn't be forgotten that has less to do with anything practical. I think there's more to the intuitive and even personal than a lot of investors let on. Uh, some of them are probably not even aware that they're doing it. Like a lot of them just just like we do when we meet them, we get this like gut impression that you know it's really hard to kind of quantify sometimes right and it's it's hard to account for and definitely almost impossible to prepare for you know obviously shower uh you know uh you know just the the, the basic stuff to to kind of be at your best and most professional but you know there's your mileage may vary there as well you know let's not remember uh, let's not forget the the 90s where you know, your IT startup better have someone skateboarding through it, you know, because otherwise they won't take you seriously. So it's, you know, it's not clear what's going to affect their feel. Um, but that said, I found that just like preparedness usually impresses, because even if you have a, a, a great elevator pitch, which I think you should have, and even if you do what I suggested before with front loading all your deal breakers, um, I found that once you've done those and once you, you have them hooked enough to want to hear more, just a, a, a general and broad degree of preparedness is going to help you a lot. Like preparedness to answer questions they may have, whatever they may be. And the horror of it is they all have different questions. It's just impossible to have a template that you memorize because that template would be so massive. They all have, and I think, I mean, this is one of the reasons also I feel that it's kind of strongly incentivized to some light profanity here be a bit of a bullshit artist in this industry sometimes right it's to be able to like give a snappy reply to a question that you don't actually have thought of like you haven't thought of this question before but you you give the impression that you have thought about it a lot and that can actually have a disproportionate reward attached to it um but um that's nothing i do but i'm just saying that uh, <laughs> That yeah, uh, unfortunately, there are good returns to doing that. But of course, better yet is to actually have an answer that you're willing to back up, uh, because I find that people are really impressed. You know, they shoot off some random question, and 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 you're able to answer it to their satisfaction. Um, you know, that's disproportionately impactful compared to just reading your slides that everyone has seen. You know, just being able to answer their specific questions. It's I don't know if it's vanity driven or what, but they feel good about that. Yeah. Do you guys go over your, you know, do you record your pitches? Do you go through them afterwards if you're doing, you know, online pitches and stuff like that? Are you evaluating your performance in terms of, you know, are you, are you thinking about these questions that you failed to answer uh, the last time or that you don't think you, you answered very well? I haven't thus far, but that's a brilliant idea. I should probably do that. Uh, but I do write it down sometimes and go, wow, that was a great question. It caught hmm. me. 
let's not have that happen again. (laughs) Yeah, I I think uh, recording might be a problem already from the other side, right? That uh, if if that thing comes up, like, yeah, this is being recorded or something, I think a couple of investors might pull out there already uh, just out of, I don't know why you're doing this kind of uh, scenario. But I would definitely say, you know, afterwards go through. Um, I actually re-roll almost any investor meetings twice, three times in my head, kind of going through it. Could I have been better here? Um, How did I act as a person? Like, you know, did I shrink and almost want to hide out of (laughs) out of (laughs) screen when a question came or, you know, am I sitting upright? And and my my personal opinion about and and I'm very much on Doris side there, uh, it it. I think foremost comes down to who are you, right? Um, have you ever looked like Dragon's Den or, or the Shark Tank? It's so many times you see people come in and before they even pitch, you're like, oh man, that's someone I would like to invest in. So I think one of the uh, really things to give to other indie studios is look at yourself. Uh, go in front of the mirror and do your pitch 20 times. And when you've done it 20 times, you do it five times more. So really kind of, you know, knowing your pitch and being prepared. Um, I usually take friends before I, if I change my pitch or something, I pitch to friends and I told, tell them like, you know, don't be the nice guy, you know, try to kind of break me down, give me tough questions or anything. And if I survive that, you know, it builds confidence. If I don't, I know that I need to do more before I can sit down. I don't have all the answers um, because either you, you train in those meetings, but then you might be burning contacts or you train before you do the meetings and then you're good at it because you won't be good at it the first time. It's just, that's how it is. And, and speaking of burning leads and contacts, um, because of this, it might make sense that when you start doing your pitching after you've done the whole training thing and you start doing pitching to people who might be interested, working from the least likely and the ones that you think will be you know, the, the least perfect fits and moving up from there is also a good thing, right? Like if you're going to have your first real attempt, don't start with the one that you want to impress the most, right? So if it's up to you, obviously you start with the one that kind of sort of doesn't really interest you that much, but at least their feedback will probably be sincere and relevant. And if they have feedback that is not completely you know, obviously unique to their situation, just feedback about the, the contents of your pitch, then make note of that and you iron that out before you move up the hierarchy towards the people that you, you know, sorry to say, care a little bit more about or believe more in. I, I again agree fully. And I actually want to throw in there as well that I can't tell you how many times it's not been that contact right? Uh, the the curveball that came out of, you know, like I met someone in a corridor and like, hey, we should sit down or something. And then suddenly we're sitting down just having a chat, and almost like a laugh. And that became the investor uh, rather than, you know, that guy that you've been chasing for three weeks. And finally, they give you 15 minutes. And now you're like, I really have to show off everything I have. And, and it just doesn't end up in anything. Um, I think in most cases, it's some sort of numbers game. I mean, when you become, let's say, bigger or more well-known, it changes. But if you are that indie studio, then it is a numbers game. You can't take a no uh, seriously in that sense. Learn from it, but don't get discouraged by it. Perfect, perfect. Um, And last, but uh, by no means least, Ula, what's your question, please? 
Yeah, I wanted to ask a bit about your, you know, the size of the round and uh, the amount of money you think you should raise at any game, you know, being the sort of the first round, what's your strategy there and, and what are you looking for and how much are you or were you thinking about the dilution of your of your company and the cap table and things like that? Uh, how important was that to you and, and uh, this, you know, the decision of what kind of investors that you're talking to first? Are you going, you know, small round with angels? To, and how, how does that play into your, you know, the, the strategy that you have for your company and their growth? All right, Bastian here again. Let me jump in first again then. Um, I actually think this depends a lot on on what you're trying to achieve. Like knowing your end goal and knowing how much money you will need to do it is kind of that first part and then almost double it because no project will really end up where it's supposed to. Everything is delayed and everything will cost more. So the question is, is it easier for me to raise more in the first go? Just ask for double what you think you need and then you go with that or is it easier to fail and then have to ask again because now you might be further down the line with your project so now you might have something to show or whatever it might be rather than you know your first pitch where you only had an idea that was good um these things are super difficult to answer i think um it's a little bit about that risk normally down the line the more you've created the more you can put value on your company, you know, putting a stock price up or, or giving out less equity. On the other hand, and, and now we're where Ted was before, right, with people asking about metrics and, and whatnot, how many downloads do you have? There's also a certain amount of risk once you get closer to a release, because now people will kind of want to wait and really see what happens. Uh, so you might get stuck in that gray zone before a release. Uh, where it's just too close. People will be like, okay, well, contact me again in three months or four months or six when you're out. I will look at the matrix and then we can decide. Um, so knowing when to ask for money, I think is as important as knowing how much you want to ask for. Yeah, I think that's a very good uh, answer, actually. Um, for us, it has been... Um, we really don't have any fixed number yet because there is so many variables that we we don't really know yet. So um, right now we're more looking into uh, uh, angels and try to make uh, a prototype of the of the product we're trying to develop right now. We have a few uh, products that we developed earlier, and that's mostly because to show what type of games, what type of products we're doing. How do we work with graphics? How do we work with usability? How do we work with technique, et cetera, et cetera? And also a chance for us to really get into the new technique now, because when I was programming like 20 years ago, it's a whole other ball game than today. Uh, so, so for myself, I really have to relearn everything in that sense. Uh, so that's why those products are pretty good for us, because it's a, a playground for us to really test out and find our way forward. And at the same time, we have a new product that we believe in, that we're going to try to sell into the to the schools. And uh, we're right now we're aiming for uh, angels really to to make that product. And after we've done that, maybe go out more broad and see if we can raise a higher capital, a higher investment. Uh, and um, we then we also know a little bit more uh, how much we actually do need. 
because everything right now is basically covered by me and my freelancing now and then. Um, and that only gets you so far. So it's really important to know a little bit more where to go, how much it actually will cost and uh, everything like that. So it's, yeah, I say that's where we are right now. Yeah, at Right Size Games, we've been approaching this a little bit from the point of view of risk mitigation over the long term. Um, so for our game, and you know, we're making a pay-to-play PC and console game, um, and given that it's the the you know the, the first game that we're making, uh, you know, as a studio and some of the other um, aspects, I've kind of felt like the most responsible thing to do is certainly not to try to self-publish it. Uh, in fact, if we can find a good publisher um, that you know will work with us on good terms, that understands the product segment that we're looking to be in and, and such factors, that will be the best way to go about it. Um, and I've actually done the, I don't know if this is clever, uh, remains to be seen, but I've actually started by talking to those publishers first, even though that comes with some degree of risk. So I've been out of pocket and producing deliverables um, together with my colleagues, you know, in our free time and as far as has been possible. Um, and there are a few reasons for this. Um, but one thing to, to never forget, I think, is that the ownership structure of the company can both open and close doors in the future. There have been publishers that I have spoken with that were very interested in knowing who owns how much of the company and those kinds of details. And uh, some of them didn't like the idea of having, you know, angels or VCs on board at this stage. You know, others were more open to it. Right, but but it matters. So I think this is the kind of thing where, you know, again, me and my just general dislike of risk, I, I'm I'm essentially just trying to figure out like what is the appetite if I find myself, you know, um, and this is, this is way in the future, you know, I still haven't bugged everyone, but if I find myself, you know, not finding a publisher who's a sufficiently good fit, or if I find a bunch that, you know, are a good fit, but for whatever reason, they're like, well, maybe at this stage, you know, we, we want to take on more of a wait and see, at least I've shortlisted a bunch of potential publishers and I kind of know what their requirements are to get them you know, across the finish line. And that is a context where I'd be a lot happier with bringing on board additional funding. I am a lot less happy with the idea of diluting the company uh, and bringing on board minority owners, trying to make prototype and other, you know, flashy deliverables to impress someone that might only exist in my head, right? So I'm, I'm working a little bit backwards in that sense. So I'm trying to put off any such uh, fundraising and working backwards, and with a bit of luck, it's going to actually work out. Very interesting, actually. I had no idea about that angle, actually. So um, I think that was pretty pretty interesting. I'm going to take that back and think about it after this uh, interview or the pod. Very good. But from from that angle, kind of steering back to the original question, I also really think that you know taking professional help isn't bad, right? The the hundred bucks saved on, you know, a lawyer consultation might cost you a uh, hundred thousand. 
uh, later on. So having a good contract in place, and actually, if you get the contract from someone and you're reading it, and it's all of these words that you don't really understand or you have no idea what that is, have a lawyer look it over. I mean, it might cost you two, three hundred dollars or something, but sometimes it really is worth it before signing that dotted line where you then in the end you give up equity right and left or you you know you leave yourself open to be taken over later on and and so forth so when it comes to these legal documents especially uh, i would say company ownership and so forth take help uh, unless you know your way around it perfect uh, and we'll leave it there so this has been the evolution exchange podcast I want to take this opportunity to thank Bastian, Ulla, Ted and Doru for providing their insight into the topic and thank you all for listening. If you would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at jordan.lound at evolution-nordics.com and we will see you next time.